0: This episode of Out of History is brought to you by someone I thought it would be interesting to talk about considering we are still in the spooky season. I know that Halloween is over, but it is still Scorpio season. And if you've ever met a Scorpio, you know that they are pretty spooky. So we are going to briefly talk about a woman so allegedly callous evil, and torturous, that an entire bloodbath of a horror genre can be said to be inspired by her actions. I am, of course, talking about Elizabeth Bathory, the sweet countess from Transylvania, who is apparently obsessed with torturing the women in her village and then bathing in their blood to preserve her youth. Now, she passed away from natural causes when she was in her 60s, which... I think was probably considered a long life in the 1600s. So she probably wasn't completely wrong. Honestly, I'd rather not get into the specifics of Bathory's alleged torture techniques because very lengthy lists Lists can be found pretty easily on the internet and they get gruesome real quick. Like, not condoning what this woman did at all. it was pretty gruesome. What I do want to talk about is her relationship with a woman named Anna Darvula, a woman who was notoriously called a witch and a satanist during the time period. Now, when Elizabeth's husband went away to war, she was essentially put in charge of their country, and Anna Darvula served as her main advisor during this time and after her husband died in war. She was essentially her right-hand woman. Now consider considering that Anna Darula was referred to as a witch, it definitely did not look good for Elizabeth Bathory, who was already a foreigner, to have this woman as her main advisor. Um, And if you look at pretty much any account of Bathory that goes deep into her personal life, It talks about a relationship between these two women and Bathory also spent a lot of time at her openly bisexual aunt's home that's right openly bisexual in the 1600s and yes that is kind of gross not the bisexual part the fact that Bathory spent a lot of time there doing whatever you're imagining probably and I know that sounds gross, but you have to remember that these were nobles during the Middle Ages. Incest was not only definitely a thing, but it was encouraged among the upper class. I mean, Elizabeth's parents were literally brother and sister. And after the death of Anna, Bathory essentially shacked up with a woman who was a widow of one of the farmers in the area. So... Clearly, she was a lot more comfortable in the company and, one would say, arms of women. So, like I said, I certainly do not condone or admire the actions of Elizabeth Bathory. She, by most accounts, she was a pretty evil person. However, she's also one of those historical characters who becomes a lot more interesting and fascinating the more you find out about them. Because if you just know the basic story, and then you find out all these additional details, you just want to know more, and you get stuck in a rabbit hole that lasts hours and hours. Or at least that's what happened to me. Also, a quick side note, because most Hungarian historians believe the legends that are told about Elizabeth Bathory are either grossly inflated, as in, in reality, she was truly no more vicious than any other cruel noble at the time, or that these legends were outright lies meant to depose Bathory after her husband died as a way for other nobles at the time to take her lands and wealth. However, I don't know if I'm convinced about that last part, though. You expect me to believe rich, powerful men told lies against a woman and got away with it? The whole concept is ridiculous. Anyways, this is Out of History. To Out of History, a queer history podcast where I explore the not-so-straight histories they didn't tell you about in your world history class. Quick disclaimer, which is really just a quicker version of my long disclaimer, I strive to base my statements in this podcast on research history rather than salacious gossip. I prefer facts and figures to back up what I'm saying because you can always point to the proof. However, this isn't to say I will never include someone's first-hand historical account. Obviously, you can't always believe the things people will write and say for attention, but often the words of others are all you have to go on. Still, I will never let this podcast devolve into a platform for rumors and hearsay because I love history, I love talking about history, I love nerding out about history, and I want you to be able to trust what I say. So, anyways, let's get into it. For the past few episodes, we've been hanging out in the mid 1900s ish frolicking around America, and especially in the realms of Hollywood. And this episode, we'll be doing neither of those things. We'll be discussing a figure from the 1400s and possibly a little bit of the 1500s who spent part of his early years in Florence and then moved, which we'll discuss that later, making artwork people still discuss and admire today. You could very well call him a Renaissance man? If you haven't guessed by now, I'm talking about Leonardo da Vinci. Genius, inventor, artist, painter, writer, engineer, geologist, astronomer, botanist, historian, cartographer, etc., 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 etc. You get it. It's almost depressing to read all the things da Vinci was good at when you're barely good at one thing. I'm a very snappy dresser. That's it. Da Vinci puts most people to shame, especially when you find out he worked his way out of poverty. Yeah, despite what you might think, and despite how famous he is today, he wasn't born a nobleman or even into a wealthy family. He was the illegitimate son of a lawyer and never received the sort of classical education the high-born boys got. But because he displayed a natural artistic talent at an early age, he was sent to Florence to apprentice under the wing of famed painter... I will definitely pronounce this wrong, I am very sorry, my mouth doesn't do Italian well, but we're just going to go for it. Andrea Del Veraccio. Never going to say it again, because I don't want to butcher anyone's name twice. Besides all that, you could find out any of this stuff in a biography of Da Vinci. You could find out any of this stuff in a Wikipedia article of Da Vinci, and there are tons of biographies and the wikipedia article is quite long and obviously you can look that up yourself that's not why you came to listen to my podcast let's get into some fun stuff now i'm going to start with this side note because i think it is very interesting hopefully you will think it's pretty funny during da vinci's life the word florenzer aka someone from florence was a german slang for homosexual. So that gives you an idea of what other countries thought of the city of florence at the time and during his time in florence da vinci was actually arrested twice for the crime of sodomy and he was released both times in both instances he was arrested along with a group of other young men the first time one of the young men was a nobleman so they were allegedly able to get the charges dropped because the nobleman's family was able to kind of shove it under the rug the second time. They couldn't get any witnesses to come forward, so the charges were dropped. Now I just want to say as a disclaimer, during this time in Florence, it wasn't unheard of for people to lob false accusations against people. However, there's not much to gain from a young man with little money and few connections. Leonardo da Vinci, when he was in his early twenties, was not Leonardo da Vinci, the famous artist. Sure, he had some wealthy friends and was training under one of the best masters at the time, But why drag him into it instead of just the nobleman he was friends with? And there are, of course, other reasons to think Da Vinci wasn't exactly interested in women. For one, he was insanely prolific when it came to sketching the human body and anatomy. This was the guy who sketched the Vitruvian man, after all. Which, by the way, is a sketch used by Da Vinci to ponder the ideal human proportions as proposed by the ancient Roman architect Vitruvius, hence the name. The drawing has come to symbolize the image of the renaissance man as a whole a person perfectly in proportion with the world around him da vinci even went as far as examining cadavers to make sure he understood anatomy completely and this is one of the reasons it often took him so long to complete a painting because he wanted to be able to go back and correct it if he had gotten certain aspects of the anatomy such as cheeks or hands wrong supposedly He painted the famous smile on the Mona Lisa, or smirk, or whatever you want to call it, after using cadavers to observe the way mouth muscles move. So he was a pretty creepy guy. So when you look at his sketchbooks, a few things start to stand out. A majority of the nudes in his sketchbook are of men. He does sketch women and the nude female form, but it's not difficult to notice that the male sketches are much more detailed and clearly received more attention from Da Vinci than the female sketches did. Also, in one of his notebooks, Da Vinci claims to be disgusted by male-female relations, and that is not even me trying to exaggerate, because here is what he almost literally said. I say almost literally because he definitely didn't say this in English, and I'm about to read it in English. Anyways, he said, The act of procreation, and anything that has any relation to it, is so disgusting that human beings would soon die out if there were no pretty faces and sensuous dispositions. So, it's really no wonder he never got married and never had kids. In fact, there is literally no historical record of Da Vinci ever being involved with a woman. And then there is also the matter of his two main apprentices, who I am definitely going to butcher their names, and I apologize in advance, and if you are Italian, I apologize, because if you don't already hate me, you are about to hate me in like three seconds. So, his two main apprentices, named Francesco Melzi and Jean Giacomo Caprotti, da oreno thankfully the latter was nicknamed selay or selai but i'm gonna say selay because it sounds like slay and i know that's stupid but that's my reasoning and selay or selai was a nickname which meant little devil and this little shithead definitely earned that nickname Leonardo himself refers to him as a thief, a liar, stubborn, and a glutton. Soleil frequently stole valuables from the household he shared with da Vinci and spent a fortune on himself. Yet, da Vinci kept him on as an apprentice for 30 years. He even uses him as a model in many of his sketches and at least one painting, which is titled John the Baptist. And if you are driving, then you should definitely wait until you get to your office or home or planetarium or wherever you're heading to to look this up but if you are not driving and you are able to check your phone in a legal way right now then you should definitely pause this podcast and look up that painting because it looks a little saucy to me and maybe that's just me and maybe I'm the only person under the age of 40 that still uses the term saucy and maybe yes to both of those but you should look at it anyway and let me know what you think. Many, many, many people at the time wondered why da Vinci kept Soleil on despite his awful behavior. And da Vinci even gifted the Mona Lisa to Soleil in his will. So he didn't give it to the guy who commissioned the painting. He gave it to his little shithead apprentice. And then there was Melzi who was not a shithead, he was actually very sweet, and he was with Da Vinci to his dying day. And once again, no exaggeration, when Da Vinci passed, it was Melzi who sent letters to Da Vinci's brothers to let them know of his death, even saying in the letters, everyone is grieved at the loss of such a man that nature no longer has it in her power to produce. Which, side note, Can somebody resurrect Melzi and have him write my fucking obituary? Because while I do love my family and friends, I don't trust them to write something as pretty as what he wrote for Da Vinci. And Melzi was also the one placed in charge of Leonardo's prized notebooks to prepare them for publication post-mortem. So you have a man who has no public relationship with a woman that the historical records show. However, He does have these two young men who he is insanely close to and he grants them jurisdiction over his prized possessions, his artwork, and his notebooks. He doesn't give them to his family, but to these two men that have been with him for most of their lives. And there is another piece of evidence relating to Da Vinci's relationship with Michelangelo. And not that kind of relationship. Because I'm afraid you'll only find that in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles slash fic. Which, if you find some good ones, send it to me because I guarantee it is fucking wild. Speaking of, I have always had an issue with the way they were named. Because, honestly, like, Donatello should have been named Leonardo. Considering he was kind of, like, the smart one. And Michelangelo should have been named Raphael, because he was the fun one, and you can go ahead and rename Raphael Michelangelo, because Michelangelo was kind of a sassy little shit, as you'll see when I talk about him in a second, and since I don't really feel like thinking about another renaissance painter right now, we'll just go ahead and say Leonardo should have been named Donatello. I don't know if that's correct, but he's the only one that's left, and sure, sure, Donatello was a leader. prove me wrong if you have time anyways if anybody had asked me that is what I would have named them because that is what a children's cartoon about turtles who are covered in radioactive ooze and then taught karate by a rat who is also covered in radioactive ooze really needs and that is historical accuracy Anyways, back to the topic at hand, because I don't want to fall into a turtle rabbit hole. Whatever. According to sources of the day, Michelangelo, the artist, not the turtle, was not a fan of Leonardo da Vinci. He frequently chastised the older artist for his inability to complete works, which we've already spoken about a little bit before, and it's because da Vinci was such a perfectionist, it would often take him decades to complete a project, if he ever even truly did. And this was typically due to him waiting until he had more an idea of the anatomy of the subject, which was something he was constantly studying, so he was constantly editing his portraits and paintings. Once he started the Mona Lisa, he worked on it for the rest of his life, adding little touches and flourishes as his learning progressed and he wanted to better the painting. And there are indeed many da Vinci paintings which are considered unfinished, including the Mona Lisa. And this was just because da Vinci wanted his paintings to be perfect, and that was pretty much impossible to obtain. There's just not enough time in the world for him to make them as perfect as he wanted them to be. Many believed Michelangelo was so antagonistic towards da Vinci because of his jealousy or animosity, since Michelangelo was fairly talented, yet he did not receive the adoration da Vinci did. And there are also some biographers who believe another reason was that Michelangelo was pretty much considered celibate, yet he channeled his interest in men through his work, which, if you've actually looked at the paintings in the Sistine Chapel and his Statue of David, that theory seems pretty plausible. According to the thought process of these biographers, da Vinci was very comfortable with his sexuality, and that perhaps made Michelangelo additionally jealous of him in a way he couldn't immediately pinpoint, something he probably wasn't ready to address in himself. But back to da Vinci. as The topic of his sexuality fluctuates in and out of vogue, just depending on what society is like at the time. Uh, Sigmund Freud even wrote an essay about it based on a dream da Vinci talks about in one of his journals. And if you can find that essay, I highly recommend reading it because it's written by Sigmund Freud. You know it's going to be interesting as fuck. Most scholars today agree that da Vinci was most likely homosexual. And this is based on his seeming disdain for heterosexual intercourse and the very close relationships he had with men, both of which we talked about a little more in detail in this podcast. So, assuming all of this evidence, I feel it's pretty fair to say Leonardo da Vinci, genius, inventor, artist, painter, writer, engineer, geologist, astronomer, botanist, historian, cartographer, and gay. Much thanks for this episode going towards Walter Isaacson and his moving biography of Leonardo da Vinci, as well as some excellent biographies by Michael White, Claire Farrago, and Ben Lantell. Also, while I was doing my research for this episode, I found out that there's going to be a series about Leonardo da Vinci by Frank Spotnitz and Steve Thompson where, allegedly, he is going to be portrayed as a gay man. And it's supposed to be released next year, and I'm pretty excited, so keep your eyes peeled because I'm going to be on the lookout for this. I think it's going to be really cool and really interesting, and hopefully very well done. Thanks again for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to leave a quick review or maybe even give us a rating. I love attention, so give me attention. And who's afraid of who we'll be covering in the next episode? And I suppose you will just have to come back and see you next time don't forget, you are creating your own history every single day. So make it a good one. And I'll talk to you next time.